Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the fight in B.C. over old growth logging. The stakes have been raised in this one big time after the announcement this week from the B.C. government, the plan to potentially defer logging on 2.6 million hectares of land in British Columbia. The industry sounding the alarm here. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Susan Yurkovich president and ceo of the bc council of forest Industries. susan thank you for coming on today my pleasure thanks for having can, me can you put some of these massive numbers into a little bit of context like when people hear 2.6 million hectares of forest like what does that mean how big is that yeah well if you think about it when we look at that in terms of uh what might be uh, the harvesting base that comes down to about 10 million cubic meters so you know, if we look at an average sawmill in the province, you know, depending on the size, con- consumes between five to 700,000 cubic meters a year. Uh, the consequence of having uh, the 10 million cubic meters removed is going to result in closures of 14 to 20 sawmills should these recommendations from the advisory panel be fully implemented. And of course, each sawmill has, you know, these are, this is, it's just not a number. These are families, these are workers, these are families, and the knock-on effects to communities, as you um, will have seen uh, from people's concerns, are, are going to be profound. Yeah, and this is one of the things that I think took people by surprise this week is the scale of what's being proposed here. 20 sawmills being shut down. I mean, that'd be huge. And then the job loss numbers. I mean, this is the one that really... I think, knocked people for a loop this week when they saw these job loss numbers potential. Let me ask you about that, Susan, and and especially about the the apparent kind of contradiction here, because the government is talking about 4,500 lost jobs, which is massive in itself, but your association is saying, no, it could be a a lot bigger than that, 18,000. Why is there a difference in numbers there? Well, look, the information that we got was based on our, you know, initial calculation, just based off the 2.6 million hectares. And I think what we need to do is get the maps and uh, government has made those public. But what we need to do is get the maps uh, at, a, at a, you know, a resolution where we can actually do a robust, thorough region by region uh, analysis, which is what we've engaged an external firm to, to do. And we will need to have the data from the government to do that. But if you just, if you take 2.6 million hectares, that translates into 10 million cubic meters. And we hear, we know from the StatsCan model that we use, that's a model that we use, but that also the province used. And that captures the economic footprint of the forest sector in the province, including the direct and indirect um, Right. Uh, jobs. And so if we look at that, it says for every million cubic meter, uh, there are 1,800 jobs uh, supported and about $40 million in government revenue generated. So we took that number times 10 million cubic meters. That's 18,000 jobs and $400 million uh, per year in lost revenue. That's how we came up with our initial calculation. And of course, you know, that's going to change uh, once we see the region-to-region impact, that's just an estimate from what yeah. the the uh, information we were given this week. Okay, let's talk a little bit about those 18,000 jobs, if that actually happened. Man, that is a lot of people out of work. Can you talk a little bit about what that would would mean for families, communities? Can people get other work? Can they get retraining? What do you think? 
Well, I know that um, there has been some discussion about transition programs or bridges to retirement. But look, this is a sector that has had a proud history. It's been foundational to the economy and it has a really bright future, including, uh, you know, as we think about the climate challenge we're all facing, this is a sector that is part of the solution. Trees grow, they capture carbon. When you harvest them and you create wood products, they store carbon for the life of the product. It's why jurisdictions around the globe are looking to build more with wood, including uh, our own jurisdiction in British Columbia. It's why the government has a mass timber initiative. It's why people are looking to remove single-use plastics and and change those out to products uh, packaging that's made out of forest fiber, because it's from a, a planet perspective, it's a better choice for the planet to make products made out of forest fiber. So when you have uh, something like this happen, and it has a devastating impact on communities, um, you know, where are those workers going to find jobs? They, that, that's a big question mark. I mean, I don't, I think we've got an opportunity to employ people for the jobs of the future. This is a sector that has a really bright future, but it's not going to have a bright future if we don't have a predictable supply of fiber. And I think, you know, when you close a mill in a community, it's not just the jobs that are lost at the mill. All of a sudden, people's, the value of their home is uh, severely impacted. People make a choice to move away. People move away. Schools close. um, And the municipal tax uh, base disappears. So it has a knock-on effect. And this, if fully implemented, is going to have a profound impact on our province. Speaking to Susan Yurkovich, president of the BC Council of Forest Industries, when people think about old growth trees in the province, Susan, you can understand why people are passionate about it. People imagine and picture these these ancient trees, hundreds of years old, massive in size. The government says this is what they want to protect. They want to protect the oldest trees, the biggest trees, uh, the most the most precious trees. Is there a good argument there to protect those trees and are a lot of them already protected? Well, that's a, that's a really important uh, question. And so what we have to start with is the facts. And the facts of the matter are there are about 11.5 million hectares of old forests in our province. And of course, old forests look different on the, on the coast than in the interior. Of those 11.5 million hectares, about 75 percent of those are already protected or outside the timber harvesting land base. In addition, for years now, the government has had a special tree regulation in place where those big old iconic trees are not harvested. In fact, the special tree regulation requires that they be left in place, in fact, that they have a buffer placed around them. Protections are important. And old forests are important, and I think it's really important for not only for uh, for all of us, the, including the forest sector, we want to have adequate protections. We also think you can have a modest harvest that creates jobs and economic benefits that sustains families and communities. It's not an either-or question. We want to have good, good conservation, and in fact, British Columbia is already a leader in conservation, and we want to be able to have the ability to produce the carbon-friendly products in communities around our province that sustain our economy and families. Okay, just lastly, let me ask you about where this goes from here now in this process. So the government has announced a consultation period with First Nations and that this would be done in, in stages. Nothing has been decided finally yet. Is there 
an opportunity for the industry's voice to be heard here? Like, what can you do? Can you lobby the government? Can you can you ask the government to reconsider this plan? Like, what is what is your plan going forward here now? Well, I think we have to remember these are recommendations right now of an advisory panel um, right. that have a certain perspective, and of course. Um, uh, they have done work for the Sierra Club and uh, are engaged with West Coast environmental law. And so we understand that they will bring a certain perspective. We think we have to have a balance of voices be heard on this, including Indigenous nations and industry. And I think, you know, one of the challenges here is that this creates massive uncertainty. Um, you know, people are, it's not just for businesses deciding whether to, you know, the government wants to attract more value-added manufacturing to our province. I will tell you, that this kind of announcement is chilling because people won't don't know whether they're going to have secure access to fiber. So, and it's not just about companies making decisions to invest. Uh, I got an email sent from someone yesterday who's a, a forester at one of the companies from somebody saying, you know, I, you know, based on this announcement, we're rethinking whether we should be buying a house. So it creates a lot of uncertainty. We hope that the government will reflect on that and will engage with all parties, including industry, government, communities, and nations, and that we can come to a sensible approach around ensuring that we have, uh, continue to have uh, protections for old forests and, and ecosystems, and we can support a modest harvest that helps sustain um, families and communities. Okay, we're following it very we closely. We very much want to be part of that. We're following the issue very closely. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Michael. All right, welcome back. Let's keep talking about this old growth logging plan unveiled this week by the B.C. government. Man, what a backlash here from forest communities and forest associations in the province over this. Let's check in with Jeff Bromley now, chair of the Wood Council at the United Steelworkers Union. Uh, they represent a lot of the workers in this industry. Jeff, thank you for coming on today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. What, what kind of week has this been for you since this plan was announced? Like, what are you hearing from your people? What's been the reaction on the ground to this? Well, at first, it's it's been uh, certain uh, very a lot of uncertainty and like what's yeah. going on, and they're fearful of their jobs and what's and and the, I think the uncertainty is that nobody really knows where and when what mill may go down or what uh, uh, you know logging group may not be able to harvest anymore. Uh, the uncertainty is at extreme high levels. Yeah, okay, when we talk about old growth logging in the province, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, there's a lot of support out there. When I hear, talk to people, a lot of people say, leave those old trees alone. Don't cut them down. These are ancient trees. They should be allowed to stand. How do you respond to that argument? Well, it's not it's just so simple as, like, let's don't cut down old growth trees. Because, in yeah. fact, as, as, and I did listen to the, circa, the, the segment just prior with, with Susan, and, and she's right. In terms of 75% of, of old growth is either protected or in, in, outside the, the harvesting land base. And, and so we, our, our industry still needs uh, a modest uh, amount of access to old growth. And, and in terms to your, the, the terms that are used in terms of ancient trees and, and you know, ancient forest, our, our province regulatory uh, regime is among the stringents in the world in terms of uh, when we have, we have big tree policies. So if there are, are, are ancient trees within stands, there's uh, strict regulations that they must be left and, and there must be a riparian zone around them to be left, etc. It's just not so simple as like, Oh, we, we, you know, don't touch the ancient trees. We, well, we don't. Old growth, the definition on the coast is 240 years old, and in the interior, or sorry, 250, and then interior 140. So 
we're talking about a couple of different things, and it's not just as simple as, as the emotional attachment to don't touch the, the, the old growth. Okay, when you talk about the job loss numbers in this industry, and there's been some huge numbers thrown around this week about how many people could be out of work here if this plan actually goes through. But if you take a look at this industry overall, the last couple of years, Jeff, there's already been a, a lot of jobs lost, right? Like I believe even your union had uh, told this panel that you'd already lost like 6,000 jobs in the last few years. Is, is that an indication that this is an industry that was already in decline and maybe some of these jobs are going away anyway. Well, but that's a little, it's a little bit different for, in terms of uh, in the interior where most of the United Steelworker members that lost their jobs in terms of the six mail closures that happened from 2018 to 2019, those were based on things that we really couldn't control. I mean, forest fires and, 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 and did the expiration of the beetle kill harvest and things of that yeah. nature. I mean, we, we didn't have a real whole lot of control about that. It was just the annual allowable cut. And no question, allowable cuts go up and down. Um, we regulate the amount of harvest in this province on a regular basis. This isn't just something we do on a whim. It's done based on science, based on the facts. And, and sometimes, like um, the experience my members did in, in a lot of areas of BC, we, we don't have enough uh, fiber for the new technology that, run, that runs our mills. And so tough decisions have to be made, and that's devastating enough. This is different. This isn't the same. This is a conscious decision based on the emotional attachment um, to old growth rather than based on the science. Hey, speaking of Jeff Bromley, United Steelworkers Union, they represent a lot of the loggers in British Columbia. There's a process that started now, Jeff, where First Nations in British Columbia will be asked for their input on this plan. A lot of First Nations in B.C. are involved in logging. Some of them own sawmills. There's lots of Indigenous people working in the woods. Like, Do you have any idea of your members, You know, how many Indigenous forest workers are out there like i'm just wondering if some of these first nations will turn around and say yeah sure uh go ahead and shut all this logging down and throw their own people out of work uh, you know, and I'll couch my comments by first off saying that, you know what, I, I don't pretend to speak for First Nations and, and they will make their own self-determinations. Quite frankly, there's been uh, too many white guys in history talking about uh, First Nations issues. But if on a more general sense, yeah. there certainly is uh, our membership. Uh, there's a, a certain amount of, of uh, First Nations, Indigenous people that are our members. And First Nations as a whole in B.C. are a bigger and bigger player within our forest industry. And it's growing. And it's because a real uh, a real resource for those nations to uh, to uh, provide for their peoples and provide self-determination on their own uh, traditional lands and I think that uh, the pushback I mean 30 days to consultation to make uh, some of these monumental decisions I think there's going to be uh, huge pushback to be quite honest with you and I, I really have never answered the, the government's never answered that question of when what happens if when First Nations just tell them no or get lost or don't right. even respond and just keep them doing what they're going to do well, that, that's what I'm thinking about, too. I mean, I'm, I'm certain there will be some First Nations who are saying, look, we are logging on this land and we're going to continue and we'll see what happens if that is the case. We just have one minute left here, Jeff. A lot of jobs on the line here. The government did this week talk about retraining workers, uh, easing them into retirement. I mean, as a union guy, does that give you any comfort that if there is a lot of jobs lost that your people will be taken care of? 
You know what, Mike, and I'm not trying to be uh, I'll be a little bit pointed here. I'm getting a little tired of talking about retraining and talking about retirement. I mean, I'm sure there might be some of, of our folks that are, are interested in that, but that's this is not a sunset industry, and I'm tired of this is an industry that's a renewable resource, and it's an industry that has a future, and we can okay. make it uh, so that it has a future. So we need to start thinking about that instead of just always defaulting to retirement programs and, and retraining. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccination for children now. The United States ahead of Canada on this one. The U.S. Center for Disease Control has now approved the Pfizer mRNA vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. And the first U.S. children in that age bracket were vaccinated yesterday. When will this vaccine for children be coming to Canada? Let's check in with Jason Tetro now, microbiologist, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, great to be joining you as always. Okay, what is the status, Jason, of the COVID-19 vaccine for kids in Canada? Where are we at right now? Well, right now, uh, it has been submitted for approval by Pfizer based on the information that they provided to the FDA, which I was actually able to see, which is awesome. Um, and it shows that the vaccine is really safe. So what I'm hoping is that it takes about a month for a review like this to occur. So with by, I'd say, November 15th, we should be seeing an approval here in Canada. It may come sooner, obviously, but I, I would say November 15th would be my target date. Okay, does the fact that the vaccine has been approved in the United States by the U.S. Center Disease, Disease Control, does that have any impact here in Canada, or do we do our own completely separate and independent testing and reviews? Or Oh, yeah, yeah, we do everything independently. And most of the time, we're a lot stricter uh, than the FDA and the CDC. Um, that's just the nature of Canadians, regu Canadian regulatory. Uh, but the fact is that when a company hears that they did get the FDA and CDC approval, it makes it very easy for them to provide that with, um, you know, comfort. And that's one of the reasons why the procurement of the vaccine for the kids is already in the discussion mode so that we don't run into what we saw in January. Okay. Uh, what, when kids get this vaccine, is it the same vaccine that's given to adults or is, is it a, sm a lesser dose? Yeah. So it is exactly the same in terms of all what we call the excipients, which are the uh, ingredients that are not the active. But for the mRNA itself, um, that is one third of what is normally given to adults. So in this case, it is 10 micrograms, whereas the adult is 30 micrograms. And the reason that you do that is because children's immune systems have an ability to really explode when it comes to seeing a foreign object. And if you were to give them that 30 microgram, it may send them into a really high state of inflammation, which could potentially be a problem. So you lower that dose down to one third, the 10 micrograms. And what you do is you actually harness the child's immune system to be able to give, and this is what the data has shown, the exact same response as you would see in adults. Okay, speaking to Jason Tetro, microbiologist, about the vaccine for children, um, if you take a look at some of the polling, it, it indicates, Jason, that there may be a degree of vaccine hesitancy, especially when it comes to giving the vac this vaccine to children. We were seeing that in the United States. I suspect we'll mm -hmm. see something similar in Canada. What can you say about that for people who are worried about, well, should I give this vaccine to my kids? What are the side effects? Can, uh, can this vaccine hurt children in any way? What, what do you say about that? Well, first off, I, I just want to say um, 
from me, because I used to do this type of communication messaging from above, I apologize for the complete misinformation and miscommunication that has happened. I mean, it's just been a total problem for anyone who's listening to be able to listen to what was going on in Ottawa and then hear something completely different coming out of Victoria and maybe something completely different coming out of Vancouver. So that harmonization has been a problem and I can understand that there's been hesitancy. Now, when it comes to the actual side effects themselves, um, there's not really that much to be concerned about for the majority of individuals. What we have seen is in very, very rare cases, we're talking, you know, maybe one case in every hundred thousand or one case in every million, you're going to have some kind of a genetic issue that happens within an individual that makes it incompatible with the vaccine. And that's where we started hearing about uh, the clotting that was going on with the AstraZeneca and the Janssen vaccine. That's where we hear about the myocarditis that's been happening with yeah. the mRNA vaccines. Again, this is the type of thing where we really should have explained that this is more along the lines of an individual response as opposed to what everybody should be worried about. Right. So people, so in your, your opinion, people should not hesitate to get their kids vaccinated. No. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I know that's the yeah. question. I apologize. The, the answer is no, if you want it really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the fact that, okay, the vaccine is available south of the border in the United States, but we're still waiting here in Canada. Have a listen to this, Jason. I'll get your thoughts. This is Amir Adaran, University of Ottawa professor. Mm -hmm. he, he's been a guest on the show here in the past. And, and here he is talking about how he's planning to take he wants to take his own kids to the United States to get the vaccination because he doesn't want to wait here in Canada. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. And what Canadians are looking at here is if they're lucky, a one-dose Christmas for their children, more likely a zero-dose Christmas, while American children will have two doses and be fully protected. Okay, so he's saying, well, maybe he'll take his kids south of the border of the United States to get the vaccine. Is that something you'd mm -hmm. recommend? No, not really. Um, and, and the reason is uh, that we are going to have this uh, approved within the next few weeks. When yeah. it's done, then we're going to have a massive campaign. You saw how quickly, once we had the, the supply issues taken care of, you saw how quickly people got vaccinated in this country. It's going to be the same thing. And we now know how to do it properly. So I don't think that there's a problem. Also, remember, Dr. Adaran uh, not only has been banned from Twitter, but he was also the guy that wanted the Olympics to stop in Rio because of Zika virus, even though there were no mosquitoes. So you have to take what he says with a grain of salt. Okay. All right. Let's talk about uh, this new poll that just came out from the Angus Reid Institute. I thought this was interesting. It measured uh, degrees of vaccine hesitancy in Canada and ask people for for people who have chosen not to get vaccinated why they have not become mm -hmm. why they did not get the shot and the poll found that the main reason that people Canadians do not get the vaccine is because they believe that COVID-19 is not a serious health threat especially if they're young they're healthy they look at the survival rate for people who do get this disease and then they think, well, why should I get the vaccine if it if it's just if I'm just going to get over it and I'll be fine? What do you what do you say mm -hmm. to that finding? What do you think of that? Oh, it's common. Um, yeah. Let me tell you something. We in 2014, 2015, I was involved in the Ebola crisis, and we all were afraid of Ebola because Ebola kills, unless you happen to actually be there. Because when they were talking about giving people the vaccine to develop ring vaccination programs, they came up with, oh, it's not that problematic. It's not that dangerous. We're not we're not going to worry about it. 
So the fact is that whenever you have some kind of vaccination campaign, there's going to be a certain percentage of the population that is just simply going to downgrade the threat itself, whether it be Ebola then, SARS-CoV-2 now, who knows what in the future, and then say, I don't need to get vaccinated because it's not that big of a deal. We've heard that. We've also seen numerous um, uh, encounters with people who have been unvaccinated, who all of a sudden got COVID-19 and then unfortunately died. Now, granted, it may not be Aaron Rodgers, but we have seen so many others that should definitely make you realize we should not be downgrading the severity of this particular virus. What about people like the breakthrough cases, people who are vaccinated, many mm -hmm. cases fully vaccinated, double vax, and I get emails like this all the time from people, yeah. as I'm sure you do, saying like, well, check this case out. Here's, here's a case of a guy who was fully vaccinated, who's healthy, he got the vaccine, he, he got the vaccine, and he still got COVID, got really sick and died. So what's the point? Like, how do you answer that? Like the people who, who get vaccinated, but then they get COVID anyway, and in some cases get really sick. Well, they weren't really healthy to begin with. And that's the thing. We now know why breakthrough uh, infections happen. You didn't produce enough antibody to be able to stop Delta from actually um, getting into your body. Um, you also didn't have a proper T-cell response to be able to um, mount an offense against the virus when it started spreading into your body. That's how we know it brings you into the hospital, into ICU, and then unfortunately to pass away. So the fact is that you need that upfront antibody response, which is why we have the boosters going on. And then you need that secondary T cell response, which, you know, people may say I'm perfectly healthy, but have a really poor T cell response. This is something that is always going to be out there. So when you hear these cases, there most likely was something of issue with respect to that secondary T cell response. And we can avoid all of that by making sure that we have those boosters if you have a weakened immune system so that you have the antibody response to be able to make sure you never ever have a breakthrough in the first place. All right. Welcome back to the show. Talking about the COVID vaccine with my guest, uh, Jason Tetro. Uh, tons of phone calls, as always, with Jason. Let's get right at it. Peter in Kelowna. Hi. Hi there, guys. Uh, just a question for your guest. So I've got an 11-year-old. Uh, she's going to turn 12 in December. She's on the petite side. So the child uh, vaccine is one-third the dosage of the adult size. My kid's not going to gain 50 pounds overnight. So I'm a little concerned about, you know, if she doesn't get the, the smaller dose limit. And I'm just curious why the, why the difference and, and how they determine when and how to give that to a kid that is on that sort of borderline age group. Okay, Jason. Yeah, so it actually has to do with the development of the immune response. There's a graph I wish everyone could see that shows the age of the person and then the strength of the immune response and how it works. And that 11 to 12 year is really where you have that switch over. Now, um, it, the, the immune response is not really um, due to how a person looks. So a lanky person may have a really strong immune response and someone who you know is big bone may have a weaker one. I mean, it doesn't really go like that. What I would recommend though is that if you are concerned, um, go with the lower dose when, it, when it's approved. And this is what we're going to hear a lot more messaging of, is that if you are concerned about the higher dose, go for the lower one, because you're probably going to have the same level of, of protection uh, after the second dose. But if, if, okay, if his daughter has just turned 12, though, would he have the option to get the lower dose? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, in British Columbia, I believe that you will have that option. I think yeah. that uh, other places have actually said that even if you're 11 years old and in your last three months, you can get the higher dose, whatever it may be. Um, I, that's really where you have that discussion with your uh, general practitioner and decide which one is okay. best. 
Carrie on the line in Coquitlam. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Uh, my question's going to fit in with that first caller. Uh, my son turns 12 this year, but he already has been vaccinated. He was vaccinated probably about eight months before his 12th birthday is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. So he received the adult dose. So if we're concerned about that over-inflammatory response, is that something that you'd see right away? Or is that something that might show up in the future that we need to be aware of? Oh, yeah. Uh, seven days. After after the vaccine has been uh, uh, administered, seven days. And if you don't see that massive amount of inflammation, you don't see any kind of chest pains, you don't see any kind of fatigue that's um, long lasting, those types of things, there's nothing to worry about. Um, and again, these types of, of side effects can be found online. All you need to do is, you know, just Google uh, coronavirus vaccine side effects, and that will give you a perspective as to what you should be is looking that, for. Is that the myocarditis you're describing there, Jason? Uh, so, yeah, the chest pains happen to be something along the lines with the myocarditis. That's one of them. Uh, but there's also a fatigue that you can get that actually ends up having sort of a, a, a joint pain. And so those are the types of things that if you do start to experience that, um, you know, tell mom and dad that this is what you're feeling. And then you can have a discussion with your doctor about it. Uh, it's super uh, rare, though, right? Oh, super rare. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. one in 100,000 or, or, or even more rare than that. Okay. Alan in Mission. Hi, Alan. Hi, gentlemen. Uh, just a comment. Um, I have a friend who's a doctor in ICU back east in Toronto, and he said that uh, he's seeing an ugly side of uh, human nature there where those who are in ICU with COVID issues um, who are not vaccinated, not exactly getting the same treatment as those who have COVID who are vaccinated. And uh, it's a little troubling when you hear that from medical professionals who are adults that they would have that kind of attitude. Um, I just think that's not a good place in our society at the moment. And so it's all I wanted to say, guys. Thanks. Okay, Jason. Okay. I, I mean, one of the big problems is that um, the people who are delivering healthcare are human. Um, if there is that kind of thing going on, they'll probably have to go back and remember that, you know, they're there for one purpose, and that is to, um, you know, do no harm and help people right. better regardless. Yeah, and I've talked to doctors who told me the exact opposite, who said, look, you know, we don't judge. People show up sick. We've dedicated our lives to helping people who are yeah. show up sick, and, you know, we don't judge if you not receive the vaccine. You show up, you're sick, you're in trouble, we help you. Uh, Trina and Merritt, hi. Hi. I would just wanted to um, put out there that maybe for the next time something like this happens, to have it put out to the public strictly from science. I think there's a natural bias against politicians when they're telling you to do something. Um, it, it might be better received in the future that it's strictly science professionals uh, that put the word out or messaging. Because it's got to be kind of like a marketing program to a certain extent to get people to buy in. Am I right? Jason, what do you think of that? Oh, Trina, you have been saying something we've been saying since the 1300s. So I completely agree with you. I am not going to argue with you. Yes, it should always be coming from the scientists. Moreover, it should be coming from the scientists who have actually been talking amongst themselves so that they can harmonize their message. How do I know that? I used to do that. doesn't seem like this has been happening with this particular pandemic. Ravi in Vancouver. Ravi, you got like 30 seconds here. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I'll make it quick. A uh, couple things about hesitancy that uh, I'd like to see more information is uh, there's been very little information about um, natural immunity. Um, my two boys have had COVID. 
And I've also heard that it's more dangerous to get the vaccine than it is uh, for a healthy teenage boy to get COVID. So I just want to comment on that. Uh, no and no. Natural immunity is absolutely great against the exact same lineage. If you were infected with uh, original lineage, you are nine times more likely to get reinfected and end up having severe symptoms than you were if you got the vaccine. Um, and as for teenagers, the, the fact of the matter is that you're using um, a population-based uh, method, comparing it to a non-population-based method to be able to say that um, infection is less troublesome than the vaccine. Okay. That's absolutely not true. When you actually do compare apples to apples, you want to get that vaccine. It's the, must, it's the most important thing you can do if you want to prevent okay. infection and sequelae. Jason, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks again. Take care. That's what I was talking about, that sound earlier. Listen to that. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the sound of fall in a lot of parts of Metro Vancouver and elsewhere. Yeah, the gas-powered leaf blower. You hear a lot of them this time of year. I actually heard a few on my way into work this morning. The leaves are falling. The gas-powered leaf blowers are in service right now a lot of people love their gas powered leaf blowers if they have one and a lot of people love to hate on them too and that's why some people say they should be banned in the city of uh, vancouver a couple of city councillors have got behind a motion to ban these gas powered leaf blowers in the city some municipalities already have a ban in place the west end in Vancouver, has a neighborhood ban there on gas-powered blowers, but I've heard that a lot of times it's, it's not enforced. Let's discuss this now, because one of the things you hear, and I've gotten some pushback from people, especially if they work in the landscaping business, they'll say, look, we need the gas-powered equipment. We can't charge up these electric leaf blowers. I mean, if you ban the gas-powered blower, okay, and you say you, have to, you can only use an electric-powered leaf blower, that's going to put us out of business. Well, is that true? Like, are those electric leaf blowers uh, really uh, lesser, uh, le less effective than a gas-powered blower? Let's talk to an expert about that now, okay? T.J. McClure, he is a corporate buyer with Slag Building Materials, and he knows all about these leaf blowers. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, T.J., thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk about gas-powered leaf blowers versus electric leaf blowers. Um, tell me about the electric leaf blowers right now. Like, are they getting are they getting better? Are they getting more effective? Is effective is the battery the battery longevity getting better? Yeah, I think we want to differentiate the difference between electric and actually cor and cordless, and and the, the cordless uh, is what we're talking about here. Um, and cause, because one plugged in is obviously going to last uh, as long as you want it to. Um, but they're, they're, um, but the guys, it's way less efficient for them to go walk around a building for hundreds of feet and have a cord dragging behind them. So that's not really what they're looking for either. Um, right. the, uh, they are far, you know, they're, they're very powerful today. Today's batteries, um, lithium product batteries are so powerful. In some cases, they provide more power than a gas unit, depending on, on what we're talking about specifically. Wow. Um, yes, uh, they, they, the technology uh, is just uh, boomed, and um, it's incredible what the tools uh, that, that run off those batteries today can do. 
Okay, that's very surprising. It's surprising to me that an electric battery-powered leaf blower could even be more powerful than a gas-powered blower. Because I always thought, like, if you want maximum power, you'd want a gas-powered machine. But that's not the case now? Well, in today's, it is changing. It is changing every day. And so I'd say they're equivalent. You are going to have less runtime on a battery-powered unit than you are on a gas unit, though. So yeah, that's where I sure. understand where these landscapers are complaining um, that, you know, you're going to put them out of business because they will have to have more batteries because your runtime at at, uh, at full full blow is going to be, you know, probably about, depending on the unit you buy in the battery package, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to 25 minutes, right? Oh, but they could right. be running, of course, a lot longer than that. But they just need more batteries. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, let's say you're a commercial landscaper, and you were using battery-powered equipment, I guess you just have to, what, you'd have to have a bunch of charged-up backup batteries? Yeah, absolutely. And they, you know, yeah. they have all the technology to do that. They can charge six batteries at once on chargers these days um, and have it ready to go. I mean, a lot of these guys, too, have all these other tools that run off that same platform, and that's a big component. Um, you know, these guys have drills and they have trimmers, and all these things will run off that same battery platform, which is, is, a, is a convenience. You know, using a gas tool today um you know there's the pollution factor as well not just the noise um sure. the the uh the, but the uh the cordless units are about 20 percent less noisy and they get you under that 60 feet 65 decibel mark um which is what is recommended um outside right. of a, a work time hours Speaking of TJ McClure, slag building materials, TJ, when you're selling these things at your store, are you seeing the battery-powered units, leaf blowers, becoming more popular? Are you selling more of them? We are selling more than ever. They are, yeah. they are extremely, extremely popular. The, the whole outdoor equipment uh, program is very popular now. Um, we're, I mean, our, our store is really based on contractors. We have homeowners that shop with us, of course, as well. Um, but a lot of those guys are already on that platforms um, where they ha- they're have drills and saws and all kinds of different tools. Um, so for them to, to add that to their lineup, um, it's, it's yeah. just an easy convenience. Okay, is the electric leaf blower quieter than a gas-powered blower? Yes, they're usually un- they're, they'll be under the 65 decibel mark, and a gas gas blower is usually between 70 and 75. So depending, again, on which model, what brand you buy. Yeah, so you would say, okay, so the decibel numbers are interesting. So would you say that the electric blower is like significantly quieter than a gas blower? I'm going to say they average around 20% quieter. 20%. Still making noise, though. I mean, it's not like they're silent. Absolutely. You're not yeah. going to get away from that. You have a, a yeah. fan spinning at high, at high speeds. It's, it's just going to be you know noisy at some point. But, you know, it's not the same as the gas and you know the gas has a bit of that that higher pitch that you hear come through it as well yeah what about the the cost factor i mean you know especially if you're running a business i mean you know the the home the home user this is a factor too like is the are is the battery powered blowers are they cheaper to run overall than a gas powered unit absolutely there's no maintenance there's uh, there's practically zero maintenance to a blower um, you basically plug in your battery and you go. Uh, with electric, or sorry, with a gas unit, um, obviously you have fuel you have that you have to, you know, have and run. And there's the danger factor of having fuel. But you got spark plugs and you got, um, you know, carbonation happening. 
So they have lots of maintenance. So the maintenance factor is, is, is 100% different. Yeah. Do you sell both of them at SLEG? Actually, like, we do not. We don't sell any gas blowers right now. Really? Okay. Did you used yeah, to sell yeah. them in the past? Uh, not at my time. Uh, okay. with so I've been there for six years, and we haven't. We have never sold gas units. Uh, is that is that because the the battery powered units are just becoming more popular now? Absolutely. I'd say uh-huh. um, you know talking to my vendor group that seventy five percent of those customers have switched over. Right, and what's the charge time? Like to charge up a battery on a on a battery powered gas blower or a bat- battery powered leaf blower? How long does it take to charge? Uh, again, you're, there's quick chargers, there's regular chargers, there's the size of the battery. Um, uh, so the, those things all depend on the brand and the makeup. But let's say, let's call it, some will charge up in uh, in under an hour, um, and some will charge up um, in, in to even quicker. So, again, it depends on the size of the battery and which charger you have. Okay, TJ, I know that, you know, you're just the guy who sells battery-powered leaf blowers, and you do a great job at it, and you're very knowledgeable on it. And, you know, there's a lot of politics around this this uh, debate over a ban. Like, do you have Absolutely. any do you have any thoughts on it, though? Like, are, are you just neutral in, in the whole debate over a ban, or, or what do your customers think? Like, do your customers think that the gas-powered unit should be banned? What, what, do you, what is your gut feeling on it? I, I can't honestly say that we've had a customer, you know, tell me or, uh, that that has actually said that we should be banned. Um, but we hear of it, and I, I'm from Vancouver Island, and, and we're, we're hearing that in Victoria, a lot of the municipalities are really looking hard at it because the stratas are getting complaints and so forth of the noise. Um, it, it's impossible to get rid of all the noise, but you can have lesser noise uh, by going to electric unit rather than having the gas units. TJ, thanks for coming on with your expertise. Appreciate it. Anytime. No, okay. you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. TJ McClure, Slag Building Materials. This guy is an expert on battery-powered leaf blowers, electric leaf blowers. And as you heard him describe, they're about 20% quieter than a gas-powered leaf blower. Okay, here we go. This is one of the eternal questions. Phone me on this now. Should gas power leaf blowers be banned? Does the sound of the gas powered leaf blower drive you up the wall? Would you like to see them banned forever? By the way, if you're wondering why they're so annoying, uh, the sound of a gas powered leaf blower, here's an explanation. Have a listen to this. Sound quality, I'm talking about frequency really. Harley-Davidson motorcycles are very loud but most people don't mind and the reason is it's a very low-pitched guttural type of sound. But a leaf blower unfortunately, at least historically in the past, has a fan with 10 blades and it's spinning past a cutoff point in the scroll and each time that blade goes by it makes a popping sound. Now you run that at 6,000 rpm times 10 blades and what you have is a scream. And they hear that scream, and they're, and they're saying, God, that's what irritates me. But they don't realize it's the scream. They think it's too loud. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about gas-powered leaf blowers. Now is the time of year when you hear them a lot. Should they be banned in your neighborhood? Call me on that right now, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Doug and Delta. Hey, Doug. Hey, Michael. Hey, just listen, the, uh, the, I agree with technology in principle, but it's, it's just not there yet. I mean, to do this over an eight-hour day, 
you heard your last guest, you know, they, they'll run 20 to 40 minutes, you know, on a continuous yeah. basis. So you just can't beat the cleanup power of the blowers. And not to mention, they have a more of a little bit of a high-pitched whine, even though they may be less decimal count. They're still they're still making noise. So if people don't want a, if they want a total ban, you better be prepared to pay a lot more for your maintenance because you're going to have landscapers out there cleaning up with rakes and stuff. You know how long that takes. Mm. And uh, the other thing too, the it's the initial expense getting into it. It's possible you can put an inverter in your trailer, but you need multiple batteries, like you said. You need to be continuously changing them over. That's a that's a major expense. So the technology is still not quite there yet, although I'm looking into it, I'm almost there ready to make the jump. But to do complete complete conversion or a complete ban, it's just, how do you, how do you expect to clean up all these leaves? So these, right. These, so you, you, Doug, you run a landscaping business, I guess, right? Yes. Correct. Yeah, okay. So, like, if they did this to you, if they told you, okay, now you've got to convert to total electric, I mean, do you think you'd have to raise your prices? Well, a little bit, but yeah. um, there is a cost saving in the long run. But you can't run an eight-hour day on like two batteries. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well. Well. Could you just could you put I don't know fifty batteries in your, in your truck well, and just swap yeah, them out I, all day? I, I just bought one for a sprayer, and the, you know it was like four hundred dollars setup. But that that's not used all the time. You're only using it for ten ten minutes, five minutes. You can have that charging. Uh, and have two batteries, and you'll clearly last. And you know, it was like four, six hundred dollars or something just for the two. But yeah. you convert all your machines into this, and like I said, to run continuously over the day, yeah. you could put an inverter in your trailer, like a lot of RVs have. But that's another expense to, yeah. to get the system set up, and and you know, so and and there's the technology of the machines; they're just not there yet. Although I guess we're getting there. Okay. And just think about your neighbor when they're out there with their electric leaf blower. How annoying is that? Because they're okay. a higher pitched wine. Interesting. Doug, thank you for the call. I was hoping we would hear from some professional landscapers, so I'm glad you called in. Rick in Port Moody. Hey, Rick. Oh, hey, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, you know, kind of touching back, or touching on what your last caller just talked about, um, the, the cost of batteries is just astronomical. Uh, you know, you're looking at, at a, a per battery anywhere from 150 to 250 bucks. So, you know, to ask... Uh, wow. Yeah, they are not cheap. Um, but the other thing that you know that your your initial um, uh, guest didn't mention is is peak operating power on the battery systems uh, versus the, the runtime, which is kind of very important. I know he said that uh, they're more powerful uh, than a than a gas blower, but but what you know if you look at the science of it, or the, uh, the batteries actually operate at peak operating time only between five to ten minutes at a hundred percent power. Then they stage down so that they have. Oh. A, to 80% power, and then it runs at that 80% power for the remainder of the um, of the run cycle, and then it just stops. Like, you know, people with cordless drills, they'll work and work and work great, and then they'll just stop. Uh, that's what happens. So you don't get the full, your full 100% power your entire run of, of, of the battery. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I live in a yard that, you know, we're, uh, we've got a park in front of us and the ocean, and, uh, and we've got tons of trees, and, you know, we've got, a, I, I could never operate an electric unit here on on my yard it it just would take too much time i mean you're, okay time is okay crazy. thank you rick thank you rick another very informative call appreciate it andrew in vancouver hi hey mike how you doing i just uh i'd just like to say aside from the the smell and the the noise that they they make yeah i uh it's the mess that drives me crazy and i see how how often i see uh the blower blowing 
leaves and everything into onto the road and then it gets all over your cars on the street and then into other people's properties and uh, i don't understand what's wrong with the rake you know you can't just, <laughs> they, you know they could just go you don't need to get every last leaf off the sidewalk just to have it you know five minutes later the leaves blow off the tree again um yeah, th- thank you, thank you for that, Andrew. I think that's a good point you raised about the mess. I actually got a bunch of uh, leaf uh, debris on on my vehicle about a week ago. Now that you mention it, it, probably came from a blower. Margaret in Abbotsford. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Mike. Let me tell you, I've had the gas and I've got the electric. There is no comparison. The gas is going to do the job. The electric, your batteries. Yeah, if you're going to buy a Black & Decker for $40 battery, that's all you get, and you're lucky to get your steps done. You have to buy a good, I've got the best uh, blower, and those batteries are like, you know, two to 400. I've got the uh, lawnmower and stuff, but it doesn't do the same job. And these guys, you know what your lawn is going to, or your parks and, and all that, if you have to go to battery, you need, you need like three batteries just sometimes you know to to do so much of a yard you have to plug it back in wait for it to come up it is ridiculous people let these guys do their jobs put some earplugs in or you're (laughs) going to be paying a fortune there's you don't have enough plugs i got four batteries at all time going thank uh, you margaret thank you Thank you, Margaret. I would love to let you keep going because I'm loving your call. Uh, sadly, we're just up against the clock. But I, do, I am grateful to you for your call. 